Okay, good morning. Let's get started. I've got something in my eye I can't get out, so I'm probably going to be blinking and fidgeting up here. Sorry about that. Um, I'm glad to have a friendly audience to preach to. I'm, I'm happy to preach this morning. Yesterday we went down to the Clemson-Georgia game and attempted to preach, and it was almost, in my opinion, what seemed to be a profound waste of time other than the very good conversation Ricky had with a young man from Costa Rica. So we're very happy with that. He's very open to the gospel. But it's a sad day in America when a game is almost or, or, or not much different than a gay pride parade in terms of revelry and drunkenness and just sheer hatred for the things of God. And I don't know if I looked funny yesterday or what, but everybody kept coming after me. They didn't go after these other guys, but everybody kept getting in my face. I'd be walking down the sidewalk, minding my own business, and somebody would want to start trouble. So it's just sports has really become an, idolatrous, an idolatrous festival in this country. And it blows my mind that six hours before kickoff, people are just stumbling around drunk. Uh, just unbelievable. So think about that next time you allow the result of a sports game to get you to get you a little upset or under the weather. It really, really is ridiculous. So I really have no excuse in the future to let the result of a Carolina-Duke game affect my day. It's really foolish, really foolish. So uh, go, go hand out some tracks at a football game or a basketball game, and that will help you get over any type of uh, uh, sports fanaticism that you might struggle with in our walk with Christ. So trust me, it really does not matter. Uh, but anyway, it's good to be back and to preach and to have a friendly audience and be able to mention the name of Jesus without somebody cursing you out or to affirm what God affirms in His Word without someone uh, going ballistic. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22. And I want to read a few verses here beginning at verse 15. And just rehash a little bit of scripture that I asked you guys in the past couple of weeks to meditate upon. Beginning at verse 15, Isaiah chapter 22. Thus saith the Lord God of hosts, Go, get thee unto this treasurer, even unto Shebna which is over the house, and say, What hast thou here? And whom hast thou here that thou hast hewed thee out a sepulcher here, as he that heweth him out a sepulcher on high, and that graveth an habitation for himself in a rock? Behold, the Lord will carry thee away with a mighty captivity, and will surely cover thee. He will surely violently turn and toss thee like a ball into a large country. Therefore, there thou shalt die." And there the chariots of thy glory shall be the shame of thy Lord's house. And I will drive thee from thy station, and from thy state shall he pull thee down. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. And I will clothe him with thy robe, and strengthen him with thy girdle. And I will commit thy government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. And he shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. 
and I will fasten him as a nail in a sure place, and he shall be a glorious throne to his father's house. Let's just pause and pray over God's word this morning. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I ask that you would give us understanding in these things. And Lord, as we know, your word points to and glorifies Jesus Christ. So may we further understand his character and his glory today as we see types of him in the Old Testament and revelation of him in the New. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, why in the world would I be reading this passage of Scripture in connection with Revelation chapter 3, the message to the church at Philadelphia? When this message, as you know, Jesus describes Himself to the faithful remnant in Philadelphia as He that holds the key of David, He that opens a door that no man can shut, and He that shuts doors that no man can open. I find it profoundly interesting that this same description is given by the prophet to Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, here in Isaiah 22. One to whom would possess the key of David. He would open, none would shut, and he would shut and none would open. Well, there has to be a tie between these two passages of of Scripture. In fact, you'll see that Eliakim, just like other persona in the Old Testament, is a type of Jesus Christ. Okay, Adam was a type of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the second Adam. Okay? Joshua is a type of Jesus Christ. Both names are a little bit different form of one another, but they mean salvation. Or salvation is of the Lord. Okay? Um, King David, a type of Jesus Christ. Okay? Here we have a type of Jesus Christ. One upon whom, whose shoulder lays or lies the key of David one who opens and closes doors that no one else is able to open or close. Okay? Um, Around the 8th century B.C., about 720 B.C., King Hezekiah was king over Judah. Hezekiah was a faithful king that reinstated the Passover and got rid of the idols in the land and faithfully attempted to serve God and point the people in the way of following God's law. And in Hezekiah's day, he had men which were in offices, much like our president has cabinet members that advise him uh, and, and, and point him in the direction he should go. Uh, some of these men in the cabinet today are quite delusional as you watch the actions of our government wavering back and forth. They say they're going to do one thing and then they don't do it. It's really quite a joke. But Hezekiah, one of his chief officers, was the treasurer over the Lord's house. In other words, this treasurer managed the treasures in the temple and in the king's house. And these treasures were used for various things. Okay? And if you go and read about uh, in other, some of these other passages that I gave to you, you'll see that around 714 B.C., the king of Assyria, a mighty king, a mighty kingdom in that day, the same kingdom that eight years before had destroyed the northern capital of Samaria and carried the tribes of Israel away captive. This same kingdom that Jonah was so terrified about when God sent him to Nineveh came to the the borders of the land of Judah and the king Sennacherib sent messengers to Hezekiah to threaten him. To threaten him and to enact tribute. 
And the first time Rabshakeh, the spokesman for King Sennacherib and his minions came to Jerusalem demanding tribute, we see that Hezekiah gave treasure to appease these wicked men. 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold, all the silver and gold in the Lord's house, not just what was in Hezekiah's house, but the silver and gold in the temple. In fact, even the precious metal from the doors of the temple was stripped down and was given to these wicked men to appease the king. (coughs) Who would have given King Hezekiah this advice to appease the enemy? Undoubtedly, it would have been his treasurer, Shebna, the treasurer that here in Isaiah chapter 22, God says, what have we here? What have we here? And we see as we read this that this man was using his office not only to appease the enemies of the Lord, but the prophet himself. Now how much is such a description common today in the churches? How many pastors out there not only use the office of a shepherd to appease the lost, but to profit thereby? It's a common thing. That's why certain preachers who have a comfortable salary compensation plan, a comfortable housing allowance and medical insurance and a retirement plan in the church, some of them pull in six figures. There's, church, there's pastors in this county that pull six figures, uh, a salary, six-figure salary a year. Why is it that they don't speak on confrontational or controversial issues laid out in God's Word? Well, why would you want to inter- interrupt your comfortable compensation plan? Why is it that they want to define evangelism as inviting people to church and bringing the lost in and making the church with a contemporary service more attractive to the lost? Well, we appease the lost and that eventually translates into more money going into the offering plate that the pastor can use to fatten his pockets or as Shebna did, to hew out a fancy sepulcher for himself. Jesus rebuked the the Pharisees in His day because it's like you build these fancy... Having a fancy tomb to be buried in was something to brag about in those old days. And so if you had a fancy tomb, it was a way whereby you were remembered. Just like every president wants to have this legacy. As if any of that matters the moment his body uh, dies and he's put in the ground. Uh, but having a fancy tomb was a, was, a, was, a, was a status symbol in those days. And it was funny that the people of Israel and Judah would make these fancy tombs for the prophets. And Jesus said, you, you hew out these fancy tombs for the same prophets that you killed when they came bringing you the Word. You, know, you can go to Israel today, I think it's the tomb of Zechariah, one of the prophets, Not the author of the book, but the one I think that was killed between the horns of the altar. Big old fancy tomb hewed in the rock. And it's profoundly disturbing because this is the same prophet that was murdered by the people because they didn't like what he had to say. But here we have this Shebna, much like a lot of our pastors today, who undoubtedly used his office to convince Hezekiah to appease these messengers from Assyria without first going to the Lord. And as you read the historical account, did the appeasement work? No, it didn't, because shortly thereafter, these same men came back and said, you know, we're, we're going to... You, you, you uh, bow down to the king of Assyria. 
And you subject yourself to him or we're going to come and destroy this city. Well, Hezekiah had acted in a man-centered fashion. Doing what seemed logical. What seemed effective to handle this problem. And undoubtedly, this was a result of him listening to bad advice. So what did God say through the prophet? God told this Shebna, I know you. I know what you're trying to do. You think you're garnishing for yourself this sepulcher, but I'm going to kick you, or I'm going to—I like to say it this way: I'm going to punt you like a football into a foreign land, and you're going to die there. And this sepulcher that you've made for yourself will do you no good. I'm going to punt you like a football into a foreign land, and I'm going to take your office and your position, and I'm going to give it to someone that will trust me. And that's where this Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, comes into play. Now obviously, during this situation with the the messengers from Assyria, Eliakim is the treasurer. So this bad advice came before this time. Hezekiah still acted upon it. There was a notable contingent of people in Hezekiah's kingdom that wanted to go down to Egypt for protection. You can read this here in Isaiah. They wanted to appeal to the king of Egypt for protection as opposed to God. And Isaiah the prophet rebukes them. If you go down to Egypt, I'm going to take my blessing off of you. This would happen again in the days of Jeremiah where the people, after they had been reestablished and given a governor by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and some of the people were allowed to remain in the land, the people wanted to go back to Egypt. Remembering the olden days where our people used to be in Egypt. Maybe it's safer there. Maybe we can have a life there. And God through the prophet Jeremiah warned them, if you go to Egypt, those that go, I will forsake you fully and finally. I will not bless you. And the people came asking Jeremiah, what should we do? We will do whatever the Lord says. And then the Lord told them not to go to Egypt. And they said, we're going to go to Egypt. Because in the days when we worship the Queen of Heaven... Ashtoreth and Baal, we had bread from heaven. And now we have nothing. So we're going to go anyway. And they even took Jeremiah prisoner and took him down to Egypt. So God told His Son or His people whom He called out of Egypt not to go back there. So there was was pressure in that day upon King Hezekiah to appeal to Egypt. And this undoubtedly, this man-centered strategy undoubtedly came from the mouth of Shebna as well. And so God removed him from office and replaced him with a more faithful man who would carefully guard not only the treasures of the king's house, but the treasures of the Lord's house. He would be entrusted with opening or closing the door in terms of using or investing those treasures. And we see that he was one of the ones that was sent out from the king to go dialogue with this Rabshakeh. So... A letter later came the second time to the king saying we're going to take the city if you don't subject it to us. And the second time, the king and the people got it right. Instead of trying to further appease the king, we read that Hezekiah went to the prophet Isaiah. He expressed disbelief. He didn't know what to do. And so what did he do? He took that letter and he spread it before the Lord. And ask the Lord to intervene. As did the men and the people of Jerusalem. They asked the Lord to intervene. God-centered ministry. Okay? And I can't help but think 
that just as Shebna, the unfaithful treasurer, had a role in appeasement, Hilkiah, the one commissioned by God here in Isaiah 22, had a role in the God-centered approach. Around 714 B.C., eight years after the destruction of Samaria, King Sennacherib was on the borders of Judah. He didn't actually bring his army to Jerusalem. If you read, the army wasn't camped outside of Jerusalem. He sent the messengers. The army was, was on the borders. But it says that the angel of the Lord, after the prophet assured Hezekiah that God would deliver them, it says the angel of the Lord went into the camp of the Assyrians and destroyed 185,000 men. So that when the troops awoke in the morning, they found a whole bunch of dead corpses. And some people look at that and say, how, how is that possible? I mean, armies aren't even that big. 185,000 men? That's just a fairy tale. And then they look at some of the inscriptions that come from the archaeological ruins in Assyria. There's, a, there's, a, there's an archaeological uh, uh, piece of evidence called the Taylor Prism that was supposedly inscribed by Sennacherib or the people that were in his government. And it recounts some of his exploits in the ancient Near East. And he brags in this Taylor Prism of having shut up King Hezekiah like a caged bird in his land so that he could do nothing. And then, of course, everybody looks at that and says, well, you know, obviously, the biblical account is wrong. Now, we all know that when people write their legacies, they, especially when something doesn't go their way, they tend to use harsh language and try to describe it in a way that it wasn't. The proof that the biblical account is true is that Sennacherib was not able to do with the kingdom of Judah what he did with all the other kingdoms. He sacked the capital city and he took the people captive. So in a strange way, this Taylor prism admits that he wasn't able to do it. He brags about taking captive and sacking all these other kingdoms, but when it comes to Judah, he says, well, I shut up Hezekiah like, like a cage bird. No, the angel of the Lord came into your camp and overthrew you and you had to run with your tail between your legs back to your hometown. And then it was 30 years later, not immediately, but 30 years later, some of those in his innermost circle assassinated him. He died in his own home and met an untimely end. It's interesting because Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about this incident with Sennacherib and he quotes an ancient Babylonian source that says that in the Assyrian army a very strange plague or a strange sickness fell upon those people and 180,000 men died. And so you have an ancient Babylonian account confirming that around number 180,000 men felt sick of a strange sickness that killed them. Okay? And then Herodotus, which is the Greek historian, talks about how a plague of mice came into the Assyrian camp in the night as the Egyptians were encamped against them. And the mice chewed all the bowstrings on the bows, chewed through the uh, the leather handles on the shields and the scabbards on the swords so that when the men that survived the plague woke up, they had no weapons to fight with. And I find it interesting, he doesn't mention, the Greek historian doesn't mention the death of people of a strange sickness, but he mentions the weapons being unusable. And then I think back that 185,000 would not have been the entire army. In fact, you can go back and read 
in the Old Testament account that in those days the size of the armies was incredibly large. You know, you go back to when the kingdom divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam after Solomon's death. And then Rehoboam died and his son Abijam came to the throne. This is in 2 Chronicles. Um, and when he went to war with Jeroboam, when the king of Judah, Abijam, went to war with Jeroboam, the king of Israel, it says that Judah put 400,000 men in the field. And Israel put 800,000 men in the field. That's 1.2 million people from the land of Israel was the size of that army. It is said that when Alexander the Great went to battle with Darius and the Persians, that the Persians fielded 1 million men in that battle. So 185,000 was enough to send the Assyrians back, but it obviously wasn't the entire army. So I like to think that there were the dead men, as described by... Josephus, and then there were the ones that woke up and found dead men and weapons that they couldn't use, and so the army went running with their tail between their legs back to Nineveh. The greatest kingdom on the face of that earth at that time, and one of the most powerful kingdoms that ever existed, ran back to its capital city with its tail between its legs because God intervened. God opened a door. God closed the door. And it's interesting how this ties to the office of the treasurer and how God took a man-centered treasurer and replaced it with one who would trust Him first. And the one who sought to appease, the one who sought to counsel others to do what God had told them not to do in terms of Egypt, was removed from office and punted like a ball into a foreign land. That ought to be a warning to pastors today. That ought to be a warning to those who would do it their way or come to God on their terms instead of God's terms. I mentioned Psalm 46 last week. Let's turn there. Because it said that Psalm 46 was written by the... Um, Psalms 46 was written by the sons of Korah following this miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem from the armies of Sennacherib by God. And when you consider that context, it's interesting how this all ties in to man-centered ministry versus God-centered ministry. Let's look at this psalm. God is our refuge and strength. Not the king of Egypt. Not the gold and silver in the temples. Not King Hezekiah. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. You've got an army, several hundred thousand men threatened to come sack your city just like it did your sister city Samaria and your sister kingdom of Israel you don't have enough men to field off this attacker you have no way to defeat this attacker but God is a very present help in trouble that was a day of trouble therefore will not we fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea though the waters thereof roar and be troubled though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof Selah there is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. Think of the city of God. There'll be an army that comes against the city of God one day. They'll camp without the city with a great force to overthrow King Jesus at the end of His millennial reign. Satan will be loosed for a little season and gather the armies of the earth, men who've, who've lived under the reign of Christ and yet think they can overthrow Him. Gog and Magog. They'll come and gather themselves in their tents 
around the city. And just like with Sennacherib, there won't be a battle because fire will come down from heaven and devour the camp before a sword is drawn, before a gun is fired. And then Satan will be cast forever into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the dead will stand in judgment before God. God is in the midst of her. That is the city, the city of Jerusalem here. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. The men fell in their sleep. Woke in the morning and found dead corpses. Early, early God helped. The heathen raged. Sennacherib and his armies. The kingdoms were moved. God uttered His voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. You know, God told Israel not to put their trust in chariots and horses. God told Israel, not, not under David, not even to count the troops. You don't need to know how many troops you have to throw into battle. I will be your captain. And David sinned when he numbered the troops. And even Joab, his chief officer, who had his share of troubles and issued his share of bad advice, said, do not do this wicked thing against God. You don't need to know how many men we have. God will fight for us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord. What desolations He had made in the earth. Come behold what God has done. He's delivered us from King Sennacherib in Assyria. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow. I find that story about the mice chewing the bowstrings interesting here. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen with or without your power of persuasion, with or without your Sunday morning message, with or without your servanthood evangelism, with or without your effective ministry that invites people to church. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Oh, that that mindset that Judah and Hezekiah learned the hard way would be our mindset as the church in terms of the spiritual battle that is waged daily against powers and principalities, against a lost world as we attempt to share the gospel and be a faithful light, loving one another as the body of Christ. Oh, that that would be our mindset, that our ministry, success or failure, but would be rooted in God, that we'd allow God to open and close the doors. Shebna, a treasurer that sought to appease the king of Assyria and seek refuge in Egypt, advised Hezekiah. Thus, his motive was self. His job was man-centered. Eliakim was given the authority by God, granted God-centered stewardship, and he was praised. Friends, Christ is a type of Eliakim. What does Eliakim mean? It means God doth establish. And we can see by reading that great messianic psalm, Psalm 2, that Jesus is the one God has established. Yea, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. You see, the nations rage, the heathens tremble. The football fans mock and curse Jesus Christ as they did yesterday. Yet He is God's anointed. 
That's what Christ means. We often speak of Jesus Christ as if Christ is His last name. It's not His last name. It is His office. Jesus the Christ is more accurate. This is the Christ, as Peter said, the Son of the living God. The Anointed One. Anointed by God. And if He's anointed by God, He will rule and reign. He will open and close according to His will. And there's nothing that the kingdoms of this earth can do to stop it. There's nothing that President Obama can do to stop it. There's nothing that Russia and the Syrians can do to stop it. And there will be nothing that the Pope of Rome or the Antichrist himself will be able to do to stop it. It's all been written. It's all done. Christ is that type of Eliakim, the ultimate one whom God hath established. And it's interesting, if you went and read Hebrews 7, it's interesting how God replaced the Levitical order, the order of Levi, with the priestly order of Melchizedek. So in that sense, Christ is a type of Eliakim. God took the unfaithful line of priest Levi, just like and replaced it like he replaced Shebna with the faithful line of Melchizedek. Not just a priest, but a priest king. Jesus Christ, Eliakim was given the authority to open and close doors by God. Jesus Christ was given that same authority to open and close the doors to the treasures of God's kingdom. Eliakim was the treasurer over God's house here on earth. Jesus is the treasurer of God's kingdom, His his house in heaven. The treasurer that opens and closes doors and delves out God's blessings according to His will. Jesus is the door to salvation. In fact, He's not just the keeper of the door. He is the door. In fact, John chapter 10, 9, I am the door to the sheep. Back in verse 1, any man that tries to come in another way is a thief and a robber. I am the door. So you see the tie here. It says here in our passage that we've been reading, Revelation chapter 3, to the church at Philadelphia, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. Last week we talked about how right living and right doctrine go together. We spent a lot of time talking about Philadelphia, brotherly love, how brotherly love is agape love in action. The King James isn't wrong when it translates agape in Philadelphia to to be love. The words are interchangeable. And the love that we're called to as believers for one another is not just some casual brotherly love. It's unconditional love. The same love that God had for the world and that Jesus has for the brethren. We talked about these things, but in this description of Jesus, it goes on to say, not only He that is holy and true, but He that has the key of David that opens and no man shuts, that shuts and no no man opens. What is the key of David? Look back at Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Remember these addresses to these churches highlight some aspect of the vision John had in chapter 1. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and death. The key of David is the key of hell and death. It's salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. Period. Salvation does not come because of your power of persuasion. Salvation does not come to a man because of your flattering words. Salvation does not come to a woman because you invited her to church. Salvation does not come because you made the gospel relevant. 
Salvation doesn't come because Rick Warren put the purpose-driven life on a bookshelf to be sold and to profit himself. Salvation is of the Lord. Shebna learned this the hard way. Salvation for the people of Judah didn't come by appeasing the enemies of God. God had already rebuked King Jehoshaphat for that years earlier when he made an alliance with King Ahab. Shebna learned that the hard way. What other person in the Old Testament learned it the hard way in terms of salvation is of God and not in terms of man-made power persuasion? And the interesting thing is it involved the people of Assyria just as well. Shebna learned the hard way when it came to the people of Assyria. There's another man that learned it the hard way. In fact, he was forced to admit five important words that we would do well to remember. Salvation is of the Lord. Who said that? Remember? Who? Jonah. The same people that put the kingdoms of the ancient Near East in fear, the Assyrians, are the ones that God told Jonah to go and preach the gospel to them. Go and preach against Nineveh and tell them that I'm not only going to overthrow their army, I'm going to overthrow their kingdom. And Jonah, who was very man-centered and thought there's no way on earth these people will repent, I'm not going there. They'll kill me. And he fled from God. And we know the story. And we know how Jonah was swallowed by the whale. That's history. A great fish. Not, not a fairy tale. And we often think that Jonah, you know, made him a little campfire and cooked him a meal and slept on the, in the belly of the whale. It didn't work like that. There have actually been people who have been swallowed by great fish and have been vomited up. And usually what that involves is a whole lot of stomach acid and somebody that barely resembles a man when come out. So Jonah probably wasn't very... Uh, um, he probably wasn't very pleasant to look at after this experience. Okay? And as he laid in that belly of the whale, he thought he was in hell. He thought he was in hell. And he remembered the Lord in those moments and he remembered Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. It's God that opens and closes doors. I'll go to Nineveh. And then what did God do when He went and preached to Nineveh? The people repented. The king repented. They put sackcloth on the animals and repented. Of course, Jonah didn't like that. He didn't think it was fair. And there's a whole other story at the end of the book that involves a worm and a gourd and some fierce hot sun and a very angry, pouty Jonah. You'd do well to do that. And then God says to him at the end, why shouldn't I spare the people of Nineveh? I mean, look how many children are there that don't even know the difference between right and left. They don't even know right and wrong. And besides, what about all the cattle? Do you want me to destroy all the cattle? God was kind of making a joke with him. But Jonah learned the hard way salvation is of the Lord. And I think that applies to us. Since Jesus is the one that holds the keys of hell and death, since Jesus is the one that holds the key of David, just like Eliakim, since He's the one that opens and closes doors, how is it that from Christian people I hear these cliches? Well, you're going to turn them away. It's people like you who give us Christians a bad name. That's what this girl said to me yesterday when I was, we were preaching the Gospel. How many decisions did you get today? Is what you're doing, I agree with what you say, but your method is not really effective. I've, if I've heard that once, I've heard it a million times. It's a broken record. In fact, I won't debate that with people anymore. This girl that wanted to come up and lecture us about our methodology yesterday, I just rebuked her. I'm not talking to you, you know. Well, you won't listen to me. You keep interrupting me. Look, this is a game that you all play. I'm not playing this game with you. You need to repent. 
if Jesus Christ is the key to salvation, then it's not possible for us to turn away people that God is drawing to Himself. And if it requires Jesus and His Holy Spirit to draw men, as it says in John 6.44, no man cometh to me unless the Spirit draw him, then my power of persuasion isn't going to determine whether someone comes to Christ or not. Where am I going to turn someone away to by preaching Jesus? By calling sin, sin? By affirming the message of the Bible? Am I going to turn them down the road to hell number two? Because they're already going to hell. Man, the church of today is just like Shebna the unfaithful treasurer. It's just like Jonah who trusted in his ability. Well, that will never happen. Why are you wasting your time preaching? Nobody's listening to you. I asked myself that question a couple times yesterday and Ricky kept reminding me of this conversation he had with this young man from Costa Rica who had turned aside from his Catholicism and was really seeking the Lord and said, I know I need to repent and get right with God. It's God that opens and closes doors. Woe unto those that think that the actions of a person determine whether someone gets saved. Now that doesn't excuse us if we go out and preach with the wrong motive or if we lose our temper or act like a total jerk. God will deal with us. We don't have the power to bring people to Christ or to turn them from Him. God has given us stewardship, but it's Jesus that possesses the keys. It's He that opens and closes the doors. And my friends, as a street preacher and as evangelist, I find great freedom and liberty in that. We're not called to make decisions. We're not called to make decisions. Or get people to make decisions. We're not called, called to make the gospel more attractive. We're called to go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. And then it says there in Mark, He that, is, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. That's God's problem. Our responsibility is to go and preach. Now I want you to consider... Something that happens in Matthew chapter 16. I know we're going all over the place, but this is all related to Jesus' description here is the one that holds the key of David, which we see is the key of hell and death. And it's also the key to the kingdom of heaven. Same key in my opinion. Matthew chapter 16. And it's interesting because the title of Jesus, the Christ, is what signifies His authority to possess those keys. It means God anointed or God doth establish just like Eliakim in terms of the treasury of the house of the king and of the Lord. Matthew 16, Jesus had asked His disciples at Caesarea Philippi which is in the far north of Israel. It's a beautiful place up there actually. I had the chance to go there one time. But in Caesarea Philippi, He said, who, who do men say that I am? What are they saying out here? Some say that uh, you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And He said, well, who do you say that I am? Simon says, thou art the what? The Christ. You are the anointed one. You're the one God has established. The Son of the living God. So Peter recognizes Jesus' authority in terms of being God's Messiah, the one who opens and closes the door of salvation. It's all linked. Then look what Jesus said to him. And it, Jesus said in verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto thee. It was God, my Father which is in heaven. God reveals Himself to people. And I say also unto you that thou... It's a funny play on words here that Jesus uses. And you can see it clearly uh, when you look in the Greek. But it's clearly here because uh, of Peter's name being used. But 
Thou art Peter. That's Petros in the Greek. It's a little stone, a little, little rock. And upon this rock, Petra, which means a great rock, I will build my church. Jesus isn't saying I'm going to build my church on Peter. He's going to build it on the proper understanding of His followers that He is the Christ. He is the rock. Peter's confession is the rock of the church. His confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that confession, I will build My church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise. That's why we see even in times of great persecution, even during the Pergamus and the Thyatira and the Sardis church periods, God preserves a remnant. Philadelphia, the remnant used by God. Even in Laodicea, God has a remnant that He will keep from the hour of temptation that's coming to try the earth. Verse 19, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven were given to Peter in trust by the one who possesses those keys. The keys to salvation. And look what happened with Peter. Acts chapter 2, God used him to open the door of salvation to who? At Pentecost. To the Jews at Pentecost. Acts chapter 10, in the house of Cornelius, Peter was used by God to open the door of salvation to who? The Gentiles. Peter was given trust to be the one God would use to first preach the Gospel after Jesus' resurrection to the Jews, Acts 2, and the Gentiles, Acts 10. Peter assumed no other authority than the stewardship of preaching God's truth and the authority that comes with it. When we preach God's truth as it is in truth, we carry with us the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That's why, when my brethren, when you preach on the streets, preach with authority. Don't waver. Your authority comes from God. Stewardship. It's funny that this has nothing to do with... Jesus didn't give Peter the keys of the church. He entrusted him with the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which is the gospel, and was used to open it to the Jews and the Gentiles. But it's funny, you know, when you go and study Acts, in Acts chapter 15, it was James that presided over the Jerusalem council, not Peter. He was in the background. In fact, Peter in his epistles claims no more than to be simply an apostle and that that office was given as a gift and that he claims to be just an elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. He never claims to be some kind of great leader and we don't even see him acting like that in Jerusalem. It seems that James, the brother of the Lord, was the one who was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. It's funny also, 1 Peter 5 claims to be written from Babylon not Rome. Some people say, well, that's a mysterious code word for Rome. Well, there's no evidence of that in the text whatsoever. So this was not a promise that he would be a pope, that he, but that he would be given stewardship of the Gospel and was used by God to open to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And then we see that Peter became the apostle primarily to the Jews and that later God would raise up Paul, a former Pharisee, who would have looked at Gentiles as dogs and disdained them, God raised up Paul to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In the same vein, the church at Philadelphia was given stewardship of the keys that Jesus claims to possess here to take the gospel forth even with just a little strength. 
Because Jesus opened a door that seemed closed fast. Will we be proper stewards of these keys, my friends? Will we be proper stewards of the Gospel? Faithfully going, faithfully preaching, faithfully trusting the Lord and not our man-centered strategies to open and close doors. Trusting Him for the results. My friends, the work of the Great Commission is about obedience and not results. The church of the day has it backwards. In this simple description of Jesus Christ given to the church of Philadelphia here in Revelation chapter 3, this simple description, just a few words in verse 7, I think we can discern an entire lesson in man-centered ministry versus Christ-centered ministry. Philadelphia, Christ-centered. They found open doors opened by God. And even with a little strength, were used by God. We see this in history, the Philadelphia church period. Laodicea, man-centered. Laodicea, the rights of the people. That's what it means. The door was open for the Gospel in Philadelphia. In Laodicea, the door is closed to Jesus Himself. Revelation chapter 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not Jesus standing at the door of your heart, knocking on your heart and wanting to come in. That is Jesus Christ on the outside of the man-centered church. Knocking on the door. Appealing. If there's any of you in there listening, open the door and I'll come in. No one's listening. That's the church today. One church, one that's God-centered, like Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, allows God, or is God-centered, God opens and closes doors, Jesus opens and closes doors, and even with a little strength, the door is swung open for the Gospel. The other church, like Shebna, does it their own way, to profit themselves in the eyes of men, Rich and powerful and wealthy in the eyes of God. Wretched, poor, blind and naked. And the door is closed to Jesus. It's open to the lost world. Come in. Revel with us. But it's closed to Jesus. Christ-centered ministry replaced by man-centered ministry. In the days of Hezekiah, man-centered was replaced by Christ-centered. But here in the church age, Christ-centered has been replaced by man-centered. But guess what? The Christ on the outside of the church will come back. And He'll rapture His faithful remnant. And many that think they're a part of that body will be left behind. And when the Gospel is preached by God's servants, the Jewish people, 144,000 sealed by God in those days of tribulation, you think all those so-called Christians that got left behind are going to get down on their knees and recognize their mistake and come to Christ? No way. 2 Thessalonians, God says those that heard the Gospel... Those that should have known better, in those days I will send a strong delusion that they'll believe a lie. Yet there are a great number of Gentile converts. We'll see this as we get into Revelation a little bit later during the tribulation period. There are a great number of Gentile converts who lose their lives because of their testimony. The fruit of these Jewish witnesses. Those aren't people that sat in church every Sunday in the United States of America. Those are people that haven't heard the Gospel. People that have not clearly come, been presented with the Gospel or come to a place where they understood it. And they'll come to Christ and they'll pay for it with their lives. The fruit of Christ-centered ministry is repentance and people, not programs. 
And that's a powerful lesson when we get to Revelation chapter 7, I believe it is. Powerful lesson. So we have Jesus described here. What an amazing uh, uh, wellspring of truth here in terms of brotherly love, right living and right doctrine go together. Man-centered ministry versus God-centered ministry. Now let's move on. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. The message to the church at Philadelphia. Christ has introduced Himself. And then this is what He says to the church. I know thy works. Behold, I have, set bef- I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and has not denied my name. Here in verse 8, we have the commendation given by Christ. It's not preceded or followed by a condemnation like in these other messages. The church at Philadelphia is commended. What does He commend them for? He commends them for three things. You have a little strength. This is not a rebuke. This is a commendation. Number two, you have not denied My name. And number three, or number two, you have kept My word. And number three, you have not denied My name. That's the commendation. Would Christ be able to commend us for these things. But before he commends them, he says something very powerful that he said to every one of the churches. I know thy works. Christ knows our works. We can fool men. We can fool the masses. We can fool our deacons. We can fool our pastors. We can fool one another. But I know thy works, saith the Lord. I know thy works. It's funny, in Amos chapter 9, the prophet tells Israel, look, You can't escape me. You can go to the highest mountain. You can go to the sea. Go out in the ocean. You can go all these places, but I'm there. And my judgment will follow you. You cannot hide from God. Israel couldn't hide from God. King Sennacherib couldn't hide from God. King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't hide from God. King Belshazzar and his feast couldn't hide from God. God even sent a hand from heaven to write something on the wall. Jonah couldn't hide from God. And the church can't hide from God. I know thy works. We want want real open doors of opportunity to serve Christ, right? That's our motive, right? We desire open doors of opportunity. In this verse 8, it tells us how we can get those open doors. Because Jesus says here, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door and no man can shut it for. Or because is what that word means. It means for or because. So for, that conjunction is being used in a causative sense here. Why has Jesus given them an open door? Because of these things. If we want open doors to preach Christ, we need to make sure we are meeting this character description. That is the key to an open door. Not publishing a book. Not having a bus ministry or a TV ministry. Okay? Not using the latest power of persuasion or the latest strategy or the latest presuppositional method or the good person test. Those are not keys to open doors of opportunity. The keys are were listed here. I've given you an open door, Philadelphia, because number one, you have a little strength. Number two, you've kept my word. And number three, you've not denied my name. You have a little strength. 
Some say, well, that's a rebuke. You, you ought to be strong in the Lord. What in the world? You've got a little strength. I don't believe this is a rebuke. The people of Philadelphia dwelt in John's day in the midst of apostasy. The great faithful men of God during the Philadelphia church age when they began to preach dwelt amidst infighting, political division, dead churchianity. They were few in number. They were few in number. They had a little strength because the work of the church from day one, my friends, does not attract the world. It never has. The truth of God has never attracted the world. You know, this idea that Jesus preached all over Jerusalem and Israel and Judah and had great crowds and many people followed Him because He didn't offend anybody. This girl yesterday kept blah, 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 wouldn't shut up, and then she accused me of not letting her speak. And I simply asked a question, well, did the words of Jesus offend people? Well, you're interrupting me. You, no, you're going to answer my question. Did the words of Jesus offend people? Well, yes, they did. So why are you criticizing us for preaching a message that offends people? Is it not us that are being like Jesus here today? Instead of you're being like the Pharisees. Well, you're not listening to me. You won't let me finish. Well, I'm not going to play this game with you anymore. Miss, I know what you're doing. The Lord rebuke you. A little strength. The church does not, has not attracted the world. Why do we think that we can do it today? Because the mind of the church isn't on Christ. It's on themselves. This here is an acknowledgement from Jesus that the church had a proper perspective. We have a little strength. And I can't help but think of what Jesus says in John 15, 5. Something we've forgotten. Without me, you can do nothing. Without me, you can do nothing. My friends, we are most powerful in Christ when we acknowledge that without Him, we can do nothing. When we have a little strength, we will be made strong in Christ. The church at Philadelphia didn't try to do it their own way, they had a proper perspective. They understood that what they needed must come from God, just like the early Christians in Acts 4. When Peter and John were arrested and then they were released, Acts 4 is an interesting study about what exactly the filling of the Holy Spirit looks like. We're commanded by God to be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? What is that, Ephesians 5.18? Be filled with the Spirit? Some people think that means dancing around, barking like dogs, laughing, a bunch of charismatic nonsense. No. It's defined for us in Acts 4. These believers were threatened with persecution. What's the first thing they did? Did they try to go appease the religious leaders? Did they stop preaching? No. They got down on their knees. They cried out to God. God, hear their threatenings and give us boldness. The boldness must come from you. And then it says the Holy Spirit came down in verse 31, shook the place where they were dwelling. And they all were filled with the Holy Ghost. And they went out and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. My friends, filled with the Holy Spirit is to preach the Word of God boldly. And even these early Christians in Acts 4 knew that had to come from God. It didn't come from their own strength. Boldness comes from the Lord. Trust me. Any boldness I may have had or had when, we, when I go out to preach, or any boldness that Ricky may have had or has, or Daniel or others that preach, it's got to come from the Lord. It comes from the Lord. Living for Christ, being a soldier for Christ, I heard it said one time, is the only war you can win by simply giving up. 
Without me, you can do nothing, saith the Lord. Without me, you can do nothing. It's funny how some of these great men of God during the, the Great Awakenings in the 18th and 19th century, they were ostracized by their churches. Little strength. Yet God used them. One man like William Carey was used by God to awaken a conviction to missions in the Baptist churches that previously had no conviction or no desire to go to the ends of the earth. One little article he wrote that probably wouldn't have garnished or shouldn't have garnished much attention from a man-made perspective. God used it. And people were sailing and preaching the Gospel. A couple of men got caught under a haystack in a thunderstorm. Young men in a, in a seminary somewhere, I think it was in New England. God used that to evoke a conviction unto missions. The haystack prayer meeting it was called. I, I, the, the exact year... And the name of the people involved with that escapes me at the moment. But it was used by God to awaken a desire for missions. The Great Awakenings. A little sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards in Enfield, Connecticut. Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. It used to be a, recognized as a piece of classic American literature. When I was in the public high school, over here at Fred T. Ford back in 19... I think it was in 1992, my 10th grade year, that was required reading. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I don't think they read that anymore. And we often have these visions of this powerful preacher up there pounding the pulpit and spit flying and the cadence and sinners in the That's not the way it went down, friends. Jonathan Edwards was an introvert. He's a quiet man. He stood up and read the sermon. He read it monotone. The most boring thing a speaker could do. And people were on their knees in repentance. And it sparked a fire of revival that spread throughout the 13 colonies. George Whitfield would preach in the fields. He talked one day about how he went out there and in and, and that particular day he even had pieces of a dead cat thrown at him. Probably thought, why in the world I would waste my time? And before you knew it, 60,000 people would come to hear the man preach in a field. God brought revival. When we have a little strength, when we are weak, yet He is strong. That's the perspective we as a church need to have. That's what Philadelphia had. What else did they do? They kept God's Word. Even in the face of persecution and even dwelling in the midst of apostasy, as was the case with the church at Philadelphia in John's day. What is it to keep God's Word? Well, it's to keep the whole counsel of God. To keep means to guard, to consider it precious. Not to isolate some portion of Scripture with red letters, but to keep precious and guard the whole counsel of God. Line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. The whole counsel of God. Jesus Christ enfolded in the Old Testament, unfolded in the New to keep it, to guard it. To keep God's Word is to embrace sound apostolic doctrine and to retain New Testament simplicity. Not fleshly wisdom. Not complex business strategies that we see today in the church. Somebody turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. 
And then I want 2 Corinthians 11.3 and then Acts 5.42. Let me just get through verse 8 today and then next week we can talk about the promise made to this church. Okay, I'm very close. But let's read these Scriptures real quick. New Testament simplicity. That's a part of keeping God's Word. 2 Corinthians 1.12 For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with, we- not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you Paul is rejoicing that in simplicity they had had their testimony in the world as Christians. Not with fleshly wisdom. Today the testimony of the church is fleshly wisdom to the people of this country when it should be in simplicity. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul was concerned that Corinth would be corrupted just like Eve was corrupted and move away from the simplicity that is in Christ. Is that not where we are as a church in America today? We've been corrupted by the same Spirit that corrupted Eve in the garden and caused her to doubt the Word of God. That same serpent is active today. We need to move back to simplicity, the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. You have a little strength. Keep my Word. Preach the Gospel. I will build my church. That's simple. Doesn't require steeples, building funds. Doesn't require committees, pastor search committees, all of these things. Simplicity. The ministry of the church in Acts was simple. After all that that happened in chapter 4 that I mentioned earlier, and there was some further persecution, Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says this this was their ministry. And daily, and in the temple, and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus. That's keeping the Word of God. Daily preaching and teaching Jesus. You can't teach and preach Jesus unless you teach and preach the Bible. You don't love Jesus if you hate the Bible. You don't love Jesus if you hate the church. Period. You want an open door of opportunity, my friends? Keep God's Word. Not just in matters of the Gospel or church order or a proper perspective of God's sovereignty or the day and time we live in, but keep God's Word even in matters of discipline in the church. That's something the church today don't want to do. They want to confront those in the church that need to be confronted for their restoration. Keep matters of church order, not complex committees and all of this stuff. But the two offices given by God, that of elder, pastor, bishop, and that of deacon. I like a plurality of elders because it maintains accountability. That's what I like. It's not really Baptist in terms historically speaking, but I believe it's biblical. I think accountability is something we need. Keep the simplicity not only in the gospel message, not only in teaching the Word of God, but in church order and church discipline. We need those things today. Philadelphia. They had a little strength. They kept God's Word. And then finally Christ says, You have not denied My name. It mean, this means that Philadelphia was a witness for Christ in the midst of worldliness, pagan idolatry, and apostasy. We know this because Philadelphia, the ancient city, was a center of apostasy. What was it? Dionysus, the god of wine and women and song? 
The God of the party was the God worshipped there. Right? Was that who it was? I think so. The God of the party. They dwelt in the midst of apostasy, and yet they had not denied Christ's name. They were a witness for Him. Church, the great, submission, the great commission, I'm almost done. Hang on, kids. The great commission is not a good suggestion as the church today claims it to be. It's a commandment by God. Missions and evangelism is the ministry of the church to the world. To stay at home as a church is to deny Christ's name. It's to be ashamed of His name in the world. To dance around the gospel. To apologize for the word of God. To appease the lost and to try to attract the enemies of God into the walls of the church is to deny His name. Philadelphia didn't do this. And Christ gave them an open door of opportunity. If we want an open door of opportunity, my friends, we need to recognize that we have a little strength and fall upon the strength of Christ. We need to keep God's Word, all of God's Word, even the things that are going to get us in trouble here in this country. The New Mexico Supreme Court recently ruled that a Christian business had to accommodate homosexuals because that's the price of American citizenship. Well, I'm going to tell you right now that my citizenship in the church of Jesus Christ has far more value than my American citizenship. And if I have to choose between my American citizenship and my citizenship in Christ, I will spit on my passport, I will rip it in a million pieces and burn it in the fire. And I will say sayonara to the United States of America and spit on her soil as I walk across the border. Because my allegiance is in heaven. And I don't care what a bunch of empty robes in New Mexico have to say. I don't care about what a bunch of empty robes in Washington, D.C. have to say. Jesus comes first. Amen. We must not deny His name. I don't care where the threats come from. Oh, we'll honor the law and live as good citizens, but we will not compromise the Word of God. Thou, we must obey God rather than men, as Peter said. Plain and simple. I wrote a comment on Facebook the other day about how our government's a joke and all of this. And, but Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. And a self-righteous person got on there. You know, one of those armchair QBs. You never hear anything from them. No words of encouragement. No, I'm praying for you when you go out to preach. But when they want to get critical, they come out of the woodwork. If you claim Jesus as your Lord, I really hope you're praying for your government. I said, oh yeah, I'm praying for my government. I'm praying that it gets crushed into small grains of sand. Crushed by that stone made without hands that becomes a mighty mountain and takes over the kingdoms of this earth. Just like Daniel chapter 1 saw it. That's how I'm praying for my government. That King Jesus comes. And that He puts down the governments of the world. And that stone cut without hands becomes a mighty mountain and fills the earth. And therein shall righteousness and peace dwell. Therein shall justice abide. Therein shall the little unborn baby have the freedom to taste life for a thousand years as He rules and reigns for all eternity. That's how we pray for our government. Oh, I'd love to see God save our president. I'd love to see Him save our leaders. But I also understand 
that days of darkness must come, that the days of Christ's coming be all the more glorious. We must not deny His name. We are of little strength. We must recognize that. We must embrace it. We must keep God's Word. We must not deny His name. And that is the key to opportunity, even in these days when persecution is rising against the church here in America. I'm going to end with that today. I'm just kind of moving slowly here with the message to the church at Philadelphia because it is the remnant. It is what we aspire to be. We must pay close, close attention to what defines the remnant so we can be like them. Next week I'm going to, get in, I'm going to finish up. And that should be easy because after Jesus commends the church, He makes a promise. He promises them that because of their faithfulness, they're not only going to receive vindication in the face of those that would be so critical of their ministry. He promises them deliverance. A great promise given to the remnant in the last days. The promise of the rapture, my friends. It's right here. And He also promises them identity. Not an identity with the world, but an eternal, everlasting identity given by Christ. Why do we want identity with the world when we can have an eternal identity with Christ? It's an amazing promise for the remnant. And we'll finish that up next week. Okay? Thanks for listening. I tried to go a little shorter today so we could eat and get out of here. Uh, let's, let's pray over the food. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this Word this morning. I just pray that we would always maintain a proper perspective in New Testament simplicity. Father, I pray that... Lord, we would seek doors of opportunity. Be proper stewards of the key of David, the key of hell and death, the key of the kingdom. Lord, understanding that we have little strength and without You we can do nothing. Help us to keep Your Word as it is in truth. The whole counsel of God. Help us not to deny Your name even when the very those that claim the name of Christ would urge us to do so, even when our government would threaten us to do so, may we keep Your Word and not deny Your name. Lord, may we be found faithful. Help us to look for those promises of vindication, Lord, those promises of deliverance and an identity, not here in this life, but in the life to come, Lord. Use us, we are broken vessels. I pray that every heart would be encouraged this morning, that You would use us this week to be a... Uh, be an anchor of support and love for one another and to be a voice to the lost uh, for the Gospel, Lord. To have that same compassion that Jesus had when He looked over Jerusalem and saw them wandering as sheep without a shepherd. Lord, I do pray for our government that You'll bring repentance and faith to those who are given the stewardship of leading this country, Lord. Lord, You brought repentance to the king of Assyria. Lord, it wasn't passed on to the next generation. You sent Nahum the prophet to prophesy destruction that came eventually at the hands of Babylon. But Lord, I pray You bring repentance. And if not, Lord, I pray that stone cut without hands would come rolling. That it would come up, become a mighty mountain soon and set up a kingdom of righteousness, Lord, in which we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years and then for all eternity. Thank You for those promises, Lord. I pray for those that are persecuted today that You would strengthen them. For those that are not with us and sick, that You would heal them. And those that have needs, Lord, that You would provide. May this food give us strength. May our fellowship be sweet. A sweet savor to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.